Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 165 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Friday afternoon on May 1st, 2020, and we are recording live before a virtual audience of hundreds of Austin Bar Association members, thanks to the magic of Zoom. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I think this is our biggest audience ever. Uh, definitely the best live audience. Uh, fortunately, we've muted them all or else the, uh, the podcast listeners would be overwhelmed by the roar of the applause. cacophony of just, you know, cheering and, and, and rooting. And I mean, I just, it would be, it would be deafening. You, you can see it in the video, but oh, alas, totally. the podcast listeners have to take our word for it. Um, so Bobby, it's May 1st. Uh, May day. Indeed. All right. Um, May 1st is uh, dawning hot and summery for us. Um, let's, Texas, let's... Te- Texas is open. Texas is open for summer is the headline. We got a hundred degrees coming up soon. I was, I was being somewhat sarcastic too, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so for those who aren't with us on the live recording here, what's going on is the Austin Bar Association is having a day long event. They're calling the Couch Bar. I've been looking around my little makeshift home office. I see no evidence of a bar. I'm very disappointed, but uh, um, they can make it up to me later. I brought a Waterloo. Does that count? That does count. Good, uh-huh. uh, good home, home brew there as it were. Uh, Special thanks to the Bar Association for, for hosting us today, and especially Amanda Ariaga for, for arranging it. Um, Steve, this is not your only podcast appearance this week, and definitely not your actual biggest audience, let's, to put it mildly. Where were you moonlighting? Uh, I made a cameo this week on uh, uh, Preet Bharara's uh, podcast. So Preet, of course, is the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, um, and he has a podcast called Stay Tuned with Preet which I highly recommend. It's actually full of lots of insightful interviews. You might want to skip this week's episode. Um, you know, the guest this week really had some issues. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we talked about the history and future of the FISA court. Uh, we talked about some of the stuff, Bobby, we're going to talk about with regard to the upcoming Supreme Court case for Trump taxes. Uh, we talked about uh, the DOJ coronavirus memo. Um, and we actually went a little bit deeper into some historical stuff, too. So, um, it was a pretty good time. Uh, the episode's called FISA Follies and Trump's Taxes. So if you just, if this episode is not enough for you, um, you know, uh, stay tuned. Um, it's actually, it's a brilliant podcast title because it's, it's a segue to everything. Um, yeah, it's really much more clever than ours, which of course is literally just a generic description of what we talk yeah, about. Yeah, so I mean, the, for, for those of you, you know, for those of you who aren't, uh, uh, haven't listened to us before, the, the way we came up with the title of this podcast is we basically come up with about 25 really cheesy, really indefensibly stupid titles. Um, and, and we each rejected each other's, I think, appropriately rejected proposals. And finally, we were like, why don't we just call it the National Security Law Podcast? Um, and there we go. Um, by the way, uh, Bobby, Judge Soifer's pointing out that we are standing between everyone and, and happy hours. So we should probably kick this into gear and start talking about what we're going to talk about. Let's do it. So here's the run of show for today. We're going to talk about surveillance, not, not COVID-19 contact tracing surveillance, or at least that's not the main reason we're bringing it up, but good old-fashioned national security collection activities um, because the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, has released its annual statistical summary, and there's some interesting nuggets in there to give us some insights. Um, second, we're going to turn to our recurring topic of pandemia, where we all live now. Um, we have a Defense Production Act order out of the president directed at meat processing plants, and if you've been to an HEB lately and tried to buy more than two things of meat and were told you couldn't, you know why this might matter. Uh, third, Trumplandia. We will always have something to say on this front. We've got developments relating to uh, the potential sentence or maybe the pardon of Mike Flynn. And uh, as Steve mentioned, we have 
some court litigation involving subpoenas for Trump business records to catch up with. And then that'll be it for the, the set piece presentations. We'll jump into the Q&A there and uh, add the frivolity and post-production. So let's, let's get on to the surveillance topic. Steve, the ODNI issued a report. What is this report? What's this all about? So, I mean, ODNI, this is the, you know, the Director of National Intelligence. This is the, basically the coordinating agency for all of our 16 slash 17 federal intelligence agencies. Um, and it's supposed to provide a transparency report on an annual basis, giving a statistical overview of um, how certain national security authorities are used. Um, and Bobby, the nuggets here that are especially interesting are uh, uses of authorities under FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. This is the only time we ever see on any kind of regular basis, data about how often the government has resorted to FISA, about how often the FISA court has approved or rejected applications. Um, and so there's some cool little nuggets in this report. So do you want to, Bobby, highlight a couple? Sure. So, uh, and let me just preface it by saying that uh, I don't believe there's any other country in the world with anything resembling a, uh, a serious intelligence apparatus that publishes and makes uh, public this sort of detail. So it's a uh, it's a remarkable thing. It's worth bearing that context in mind. Well, we have uh, it. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, the thing that's gotten the most headlines has to do with the so-called Section 702 Collection Authority and something that happens on the back end after the government has used this authority to collect uh, information, communications, electronic communications. Let me, let me unpack it really briefly. Um, Probably most of you have heard of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and the so-called FISA court framework through which there are obligations on the part of the government to go to the FISA court to get a probable cause-based order to target a particular person for electronic surveillance under certain circumstances. To oversimplify greatly, those circumstances tend to focus on when there's a person inside the U.S. or it's an American person, and thus Fourth Amendment equities are, are very clearly in the picture. Um, there are, there are traditional foreign intelligence collection scenarios, of course, where the center of gravity is entirely overseas with foreign persons who are not in the United States. Um, and by and large, that realm of overseas collection is not part of the FISA system. Doesn't, there's no intersection there with American courts, except there's a, there's a complicated sort of middle ground scenario brought about by the fact that there are any number of American companies that are in various ways communication service providers either infrastructure or, or software platforms like email providers. And these American companies, which are within the jurisdiction of U.S. courts, of course, are well positioned if presented with the right legal, uh, legally authorized request for cooperation uh, to be used as a basis from which to capture the communications of non-U.S. persons who are overseas. So it's kind of got a U.S. element, but it's still focused outside the United States. Suffice to say that Section 702 is shorthand for the, the relatively more recent part of FISA, going back to, well, it gets complicated, but going back to the post 9-11 period, uh, in which this is green-lighted as a permissible way for the government to compel cooperation from these American companies. Um, to give you sort of a, a sense of scale, um, these days there's typically well more than 100,000 foreign persons targeted for collection through 702. Uh, we don't know the precise number of specific items of communication they capture, but you can assume it's a vast multiple per person. So we're talking about by millions of communications individually captured each year. One of the things, of course, that's going to happen is sometimes those communications will have a U.S. person on the other end of it. 
So this, the term of art for this is incidental collection. There will be, it's perfectly foreseeable, it's known, there will be some US person communications incidentally captured in the hall from section 702's function year in and year out. And it's gonna accumulate over time. So we can hypothesize that there are many millions of individual communications effectively in a database. The database can be queried. And sometimes there's gonna be US person information in there. One of the big points of sensitivity over the past many years has been whether and to what extent there should be limits on the ability of the FBI to access that database, not to conduct a foreign intelligence query, because after all, that, that's what 702 is for. That, that itself is not as controversial. But what if they want to take advantage of the fact that there's probably U.S. person communications in there and run what is a purely criminal law enforcement focused inquiry? that has no counterintelligence or counterterrorism or other national security angle to it. Um, also, those, also known as a backdoor search in the trade. Right, so well, so yeah, so you can kind of tell a lot about where someone is on the issue. Uh, it's a backdoor search with all the connotations of sneaking around uh, the front door. I didn't say sneak. Uh, I, I know, the connotation is there for some folks. So um, either way, it's definitely a commonly used phrase for describing this idea that the FBI is getting at U.S. person information that it couldn't target directly without a warrant by getting into the fruits of the 702 collection after the fact and just typing in Steve Vladek and seeing if there's some stuff from him in there. So you're saying they couldn't get in through the front door? I'm saying they, if they wanted to collect all of your communications, Steve, they'd have to make the probable cause showing to the FISA judge or get a regular old Title III warrant. I'm just needling you. Right. So they come along and they, they've got some criminal investigative interest in my buddy here, and they run the name. Until the most recent statutory intervention, they could just do that. Um, the statutory intervention that happened most recently imposed a statutory warrant requirement. So this is not, at least the theory underlying it is not that the Fourth Amendment necessarily requires it, or at least no court has expressly said so, but Congress is requiring it anyways. Why do we say all this? Because the statistical report reveals that there have been instances of the FBI running these criminal law focused queries where they should by statute have to go to court to get a warrant. And it reports six communications were, were read in that way without obeying the obligation to go to the court in 2018. And then one more instance of one communication in 2019. I should note by the way, that doesn't mean it's necessarily six different individuals involved. It could be less than six people, but multiple communications all involving Steve Vladek and Bobby Chesney, for example. But so you have this- They are suspicious. They are very suspicious and they should be monitored. They are being monitored, in fact, being recorded, it looks like. So Steve, um, does, th does this strike you as, yeah, that's, that's perfectly ordinary to be expected or is this a red flag, raise the alarm bell? Where are you on the, on the spectrum of anxiety about this news? So can I say somewhere in the middle without copying out? Um, sure. So, I mean, I think this would have been a bigger story, right, before all big stories in national security law got drowned out by, you know, many of the sort of Trumplandia and pandemia scenarios that we're going to talk about for the rest of the, the time we have today. Um, I think it is a moderate story because I think it is worth further inquiry, Bobby, from my perspective into why in those cases where the statute I think now really ought to be requiring a warrant, no warrant was obtained. 
Um, so, you know, uh, Liza Goitian from the Brennan Center, who's really, really um, closely following the stuff. She had a blog post on just security where she suggests that like it actually looks like the FBI violated these provisions of FISA by not getting a warrant. Um, I, I guess I would want more information, Bobby, before jumping to that conclusion. But it certainly is a plausible reading of the data um, and, and something that at least to me, I think, warrants further inquiry. What do you think? So in the uh, reporting that Charlie Savage did for the New York Times on this, he, he got some comments from, from people at DOJ and, and I believe ODNI. Um, and one of the key things said there was these six violations, I'm happy to concede that, that they appear on their face to be violations of the statute. Uh, it says that, you know, it reminds us this was the very first year. This occurred during the time in which this was a new obligation. Um, and it says that in the aftermath of understanding that this had occurred and, and by the way, one of the key takeaways here is it was ODNI reporting this to the FISC and now later sharing it with the public rather than a whistleblower type situation where they were trying to keep this hush hush from everybody and it still came out. Um, yes, gold, gold, gold stars for everybody who broke the law. Uh, I, I didn't say anything about gold stars for them, but gold stars perhaps for the compliance function and the people yeah. charged with detecting these things. Wait, are you saying transparency is useful? I, I do think transparency uh -huh. is useful. We found a point of agreement. I'm so happy. All right. Uh, so the, the article says that um, after the detection of the noncompliance, they've instituted training procedures, uh, either that or, the, or perhaps it's more accurate to say they've uh, accelerated the training procedures. And so what happens in 2019? You see one violation, not six. Remember, there's, there's also the question of we're talking about um, over 100,000 targets, millions of communications. Unless, let me say this about compliance, and there's a lot of people on this call who actually are in the business of, of litigating or advising on compliance matters, so I'll be interested to hear later if people think this statement is fair. Obviously, the goal for anything you want compliance on, the goal is perfect compliance. Uh, I think it's relatively unfair in most settings to expect and actually have perfect compliance, and so when you do find incidents of non-compliance, it's, I'm not sure it's always a sign that there's a problem with the compliance mechanism. I think it may be a sign that the compliance mechanism is working and that you then want to make sure that there is real follow-up such that if there's a lesson learned beyond human error or just malfeasance by one particular actor, um, is there something institutionally you can adopt or change that will further smooth out the rough edges? And we're told in this story that something was done um, resulting in a, a singular communication instance of non-compliance this past year. That looks to me, given the likely scale of the overall operation, like a, a compliance success story. So it may be a compliance success story. Um, I, you know, anyone who's listened to more than 15 minutes of this podcast, um, it, you know, will probably know um, that I am a skeptic when it comes to the view that the government can be trusted to check itself in the foreign intelligence surveillance context. Um, and that you know, across whatever administration, across whoever's in charge, across whatever authority under FISA we're talking about, um, I've long believed that there are woefully inadequate external accountability mechanisms. So, you know, yes, Bobby, I agree. This is a success story for the transparency piece of this, because for once we learned about the violations of FISA. Um, I just, I'm, I am never satisfied with the answer that, oh, they have better training now. Um, it seems to me that, you know, we, each time there's better training, there's a new different violation of FISA that emerges. Um, and so, you know, that yeah, fool me once, right? Shame on me. Um, and so I think the, you know, the reality of the situation is that I just, I, I find all of these further reasons why we need better, clearer, stronger reforms.
Um, and I also note that the audience is already wondering if we'll notice if they leave. So that's a, you know, we're, <laughs> we're clearly keeping people on their toes. That's right. Uh, so let's uh, look at the headline actually from the report that the New York Times actually used. It wasn't about this part. They focused on the idea that a separate bit of data in the report indicated that the number of people being targeted for foreign intelligence collection within the United States under the regular uh, so-called Title I FISA process. That is, people for whom the government says there's probable cause to believe this person's an agent of a foreign power or, or is a foreign power, and therefore we want to, we want to directly surveil their communications uh, full bore. Uh, that number's been dropping, and the, the headline in the frame of the story says, is this an, perhaps a reflection that FBI is, is chilled from the political blowback of all the, the stories and developments that, associ that are associated with the uh, FBI's activities relating to Mike Flynn, Carter Page, and others associated with the, the Trump campaign. Um, so the actual numbers there, in 20, 2019, there were 1,059 targets, uh, specific individuals targeted for FISA Title I surveillance. Uh, the number had been 1,833, much higher the year before, and it hadn't been this low overall since this report started being uh, published 10 years ago. Um, Steve, all right, do you think that's what it signifies? Is it, it seems like too big to just be noise in the data, but maybe it is. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's certainly a strong circumstantial piece of evidence to the idea that there's more skepticism in the process now. Um, you know, a higher number of denials of FISA warrant applications than we've seen. I mean, I think, you know, I think folks are being more skeptical. Um, I just, you know, color me skeptical that that skepticism is enough, right? That, that we ought not to be having a serious conversation in Congress um, about putting more teeth and more auditing into the process. But I know you agree with me on the auditing part of it, at least. Yeah, I think auditing is extremely useful. Um, I will say that it seems to me logical that over time the number would be dropping given that the purpose of these collection activities, uh, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, um, you would expect to see when the measures, when you go back to 2013 at the peak of, of the Islamic State's uh, activities and in the realization that there was a huge domestic problem, that you would see larger numbers beginning to ramp up in that period, which we did. Uh, and that it would tail off, relatively speaking, as the FBI is largely run to ground, for the most part, as near as we can tell, a lot of the Islamic State activity or inspired activity in the United States and the Islamic State itself is back on its heels overseas. Um, I also wonder if the massive amount of attention to counterintelligence problems in the United States, and by that I mean foreign intelligence activities from the Russians, um, the Chinese, the, the Turks, the, any number of other countries, uh, some frenemies, some more than frenemies, um, that there was so much attention 2016, 2017, and so much uh, effort made to investigate those that actually the, the number of people traipsing around uh, sort of in the United States begging for some FISA-based attention maybe ain't what it used to be in 2019. Maybe there's just fewer- and Especially with coronavirus, right? Um, uh, so, yeah. We'll see a 2020 drop off. All the data on everything is going to be screwed up in 2020 because the, the coronavirus effect will be so disruptive. It's true. Um, how do you do the godfather line for frenemies? Keep your frenemies close, but your frenemies closer? <laughs> yeah. The frenemies, I guess, stand in the middle, Steve. They, the enemies are the closest. So keep your friends close, your frenemies in the middle, and your enemies closer. Exactly. There's, there's, a, there's a line at the door. Yeah, it's a rough one. Um, before, before we move on to the, to the segment that is going to be rife with meat puns, um, can we say one more thing about ODNI? Because there's one more ODNI news story. 
um, which is the president's nominee to be the actual Senate confirmed director of national intelligence, Congressman Ratcliffe from here in our great state of Texas, um, is actually now Bobby apparently scheduled for a hearing. Um, and, and I find that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Surprising. Um, that the Senate, you know? What's that? That a hearing's being held? That a hearing, yes. I find it surprising that the Senate Intelligence Committee is having a hearing um, on this nomination because this is the same Senate Intelligence Committee chaired by the same Senator, uh, Richard Burr from North Carolina, um, who when Ratcliffe was initially nominated or at least floated as nominee to be DNI, um, said there's no way that's gonna happen. He's not remotely qualified. Um, and then this is now me speaking. And oh, by the way, he's actually lied about what little qualifications he's had. Um, but apparently, one of two things is true. Either um, he has miraculously become qualified, um, or the Senate Republicans are so not happy with the acting DNI, uh, Rick Brunell, um, that they're going to confirm Ratcliffe anyway. Um, am I missing a third possibility, Bobby? You are. You are. Uh, although, although I think the second one is definitely a possibility. And on prior episodes of the show, we talked about the way that um, the acting position interacts with the nomination process and with, to create complex tactical and strategic opportunities like you just described. Uh, but it's certainly also possible that the uh, plan is to hold the hearing because that's the ordinary process. And he will either be able to somehow change perceptions that he's not qualified or he will be further demonstrated to lack the qualifications. Um, but that in any event, by providing the requisite ordinary process, that, that that should be viewed as good government, that they should have hearings when they're nominees, rather than just silently sit on it. It doesn't seem like they were going to withdraw the nomination this time. So I, I'd rather have it see the light of day, and I don't view it as a sign that they're about to knuckle under if they previously felt, as, as they clearly did, that he wasn't qualified for the position. And we should add, by the way, that um, there's a statutory requirement for this position, a, a rather unusual statutory requirement of relevant prior experience. And that's, that's the legal angle. This isn't just some policy or politics. But of course, that statutory requirement is not justiciable, right? The statutory requirement is meant to be enforced, presumably, by the Senate when it gives advice and consent. That's right. That's right. So, so let me just go out on a limb since I've got about 188 witnesses um, and say, and, and plus whoever's listening at home, um, that uh, a round of drinks at your Austin watering hole of your choice is on me if the Senate votes down Ratcliffe's nomination. Uh, as, as your counsel, I want to uh, ask you to quickly clarify, are you offering to, like, what's the outer boundary? How many, how many people can claim this prize? Just you. Oh, I thought you met all our friends here. Well, like sign off left and right now. I'm just, listen, they're they're all paid. They're all actual working lawyers. I'm just a lowly academic, so all right. You know, okay, I've so gotta, I've got to keep the budgetary constraints, you know, in line. All right, so if it's just us, and so you're taking the no way they're going to vote him down, and so for me, I'd have to. So I think so you, you lose. To- so so you lose, Bobby, if they vote to approve him, and if it's withdrawn without a vote, it's a push. Um. I think that if it goes to a vote, he'll get approved because I think it only goes to a vote if they've decided to knuckle under on this, perhaps for the reason you said. I think they've already knuckled under, which is why they're having a hearing. Yeah. I still think you should buy me a drink, though. I'll just- Deal. Listen, the next time I'm allowed to buy you a drink, I will buy you a drink. And then right. I will buy you one and we'll be even. And maybe we'll have a burger if there's still meat. <laughs> oh, my so, goodness. So can, we, so, so can we talk about um, um, uh, experiences in terrible headline writing, episode 4,916? 
All right, so there is a Defense Production Act order. So we should say a quick word for, for those who are new to the Defense Production Act. Been around since 1950. It's a uh, oh, Korean War is underway. We need this statute bit of legislation that creates a variety of complex uh, capabilities that are delegated in advance to the executive branch upon the finding of the right kind of circumstances of which everyone agrees the pandemic is one. Um, for the government to be able to issue some fairly draconian orders that impact private industry, uh, all designed to ensure an adequate supply of needful things for the national defense very broadly understood, again, including pandemic response. So Steve, this latest order what sort of DPA order is this? Is it the kind that says, here, we're gonna spend $100 million and we, we would like to buy a uh, hundred million bucks worth of uh, poultry from your, from your meat processing plant? Is that what it is or is it something else? It is, it is it, I mean, to call an order, Bobby, is really to, to, to give it substance. Um, so we have seen this movie before with President Trump um, with regard to, um, um, what was it, with uh, uh, ventilators. Right, we saw three separate sequential DPA orders that the president signed to much fanfare, none of which actually did anything. Right, that I mean, the weird thing about the way the Defense Production Act works is that when the president signs one of these executive orders, he's usually just authorizing um, the relevant cabinet official or the relevant agency head to deploy the authorities the DPA delegates. He's not actually deploying those authorities directly. Um, and the same thing happened with the meat industry, um, where President Trump, you know, the headlines all day were Trump to sign executive order forcing meat plants to stay open, uh, Trump to sign executive order immunizing meat plants from all claims from their employees. And Bobby, the executive order doesn't do either of those it does things. not do either of those things. I, I saw those headlines. I thought, oh, my God, it's the steel seizure case all over again. That's right. So, 19, 1950, not long after passage of the defense there's a, case, there's a case some of the folks might actually remember from law school. Right. Steel seizures, Youngstown sheet and tube. Uh, I bet many of you remember this. And that's where the Supreme Court shot down President Truman's attempt to nationalize the steel mills to ensure continued production of steel. In the middle now, of the Korean War. Critically, even though it was only a couple of months old, and his action included other stuff from the Defense Production Act, there was no claim of authority by the Truman administration that the Defense Production Act somehow had given him authority to outright nationalize and take over these private businesses. So that's very telling contemporaneous practice about how that's not what the statute authorizes. Um, so, so I don't think we're yet at the point where we can say that, oh, I don't think the president is aware that the Supreme Court has already said this can't be done. I don't think he's doing what some of the reporting said he was going to do. But, but that doesn't mean what he's doing is meaningless. What, what seems to be afoot here? What do you think? So I've heard two different theories, um, and, and I think there's some credence to both of them. Um, so theory number one, which I associate most directly with our friend Deborah Perlstein, who teaches at Cardozo Law School in New York, um, is that a big part of why the Trump administration's in a hurry to activate the DPA for the meat industry is so that the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, and, you know, make whatever chicken jokes there you want to make. I mean, um, this, he does seem like a relevant person for this job. Um, hey, for once, there's actually someone with relevant experience in the relevant job at the relevant times. Okay. I guess, you know, eventually monkeys will create Shakespeare, right? Um, so um, the, um, the Secretary of Agriculture um, could now use the DPA to prioritize the allocation of, Bobby, PPE, of personal protective equipment, to meat plants. 
um, so that, you know, insofar as the plants are having trouble running at full capacity because they have inadequate safety equipment, Secretary of Agriculture could do a lot to help with that. So that's the sort of less or least nefarious theory about all of this. Um, the more aggressive authority that I think Secretary Purdue could claim is the authority to require all of these meat processors, or at least many of them, Bobby, to perform all of their existing contracts. Um, and so I think there's a scenario where that could indirectly require some of these plants to stay open, right, if they have to operate at a particular capacity in order to satisfy their contracts. Of course, I mean, that depends on what the contract says. If the contract says you will sell, you know, you will provide us with 10,000 pounds of whatever, unless there's a national emergency, then it's not non-compliance with the contract to scale down production. So, you know, the more nefarious theory, Bobby, is that this is meant to give cover to those meat plants that want to be open and that want to force, or force, force may be strong, want to strongly incentivize their employees to report to work even if local shelter in place or public health orders are getting in the way. But there again, I think the law is not as powerfully on the meat plant side as, as the headline suggests. There is an immunity provision in the DPA. I think it's uh, 50 USC section 4557, section 707 of the act. Um, but Bobby, the provision only applies to actions taken pursuant to orders under the DPA. Um, and so as of right now, there are no orders under the DPA to any of these meat plants to stay open. And so I just don't know how Tyson or, you know, pick your favorite or least favorite company here could invoke that immunity shield when it hasn't yet been ordered to do anything. So I'm persuaded by your, especially your first account about how this actually could be very useful and very, uh, very much the thing to do if the choke point that's threatening the meat supply is lack of personal protective equipment and that that is a problem with private suppliers to these private meat processing plants. The DPA has allocation authorities that could be very relevant here and right. making sure there's some tracking of the PPE to them. I also think that uh, I've, I've come to the view that um, obviously there's there's politics involved in making loud announcements about the DPA. I, everyone recognizes that. But I also think that even when there's no specific action then taken, when there's a DPA order that loudly gives the Secretary of Agriculture or Commerce or whoever authority to do something, I do think that strengthens the hands insofar as there are any back channel negotiations or private negotiations going on between the government and these entities, um, because it, it's, it's a way of uh, putting a, another chip on the table, even if it's only bluffing and they're not really going to do anything. I, I agree with all of that. I just want to say, and, and you know, I, I want to take a second to reflect on just how bad the headlines were um, yeah. and how sort of um, uh, fear mongering the headlines were. And, I think there are two different scenarios, and it's possible they're both present here, but it's worth reflecting on what happened, right? So scenario number one is that the relevant government officials who were briefing these reporters on background um, said that the order was going to force the plants to stay open that was going to provide immunity for any of these claims, in mm -hmm. which case they either didn't know what they were talking about or they did know what they were talking about and they were lying, right? That would be bad. Um, or, right, there was some miscommunication between what was told to the reporters on background and what made it into the headlines. But Bobby, yeah. all of the stories had the same freaking headlines about, you know, the this is so, going to force the meat plants to stay open. And I got to say, I mean, you know, I am not, um, I am not usually reticent 
right, to, figure, to try to figure out, to try to, you know, find what relevant statutory peg the government has for some pretty ridiculous actions. Um, and Bobby, I've looked up and down the DPA and I, I just can't find it. No, it's, it's really not there. And, and if it had been there, Truman would have used it in 1950. Right. right. I, I mean, unquestionably yes. would have used it. And he would have won Youngstown. And what would we do in Kamla? <laughs> this is true. Well, I will say this about those headlines. I, I agree they were bad. I, I think they clearly could have been worse. I didn't see a single one that said, that began with, where's the beef? Well, so as I- um, Right there, so, waiting to be said. So, so as I tweeted, right, because uh, I did a thread about how I thought all the headlines were wrong. Um, and as I tweeted, I said, this really looks like a nothing burger. Oh, nice. I thought it was, you know. Two points know. to Gryffindor. Bad. Uh, um, so can I just say one more thing about while we're talking about Kamala before we pivot on to, to Trumplandia? Yep. Um, so um, I don't know. Um, I don't know how closely folks have been following what's been going on with bar exams um, and oh, the yeah. coronavirus. Um, but my, my home state of New York did something truly preposterous yesterday. Um, leading one of my friends to ask whether the bar exam can be on the bar exam. Um, <laughs> and, and so what New York has done um, is New York has postponed the bar exam, um, the July sitting of the New York bar, which is, Bobby, I think by far the most widely sat for session of any state bar anywhere in the country. Um, and they postponed it to September, which has created a huge logistical problem because they don't have the same facilities in September. They don't have the Javits Center, for example. Um, and so well, they, they, don't, they don't have it this summer either, right? I mean, because it's being used for... They wouldn't have had it this summer. But my point is that they, compared to the number of seats they were expecting to have when they right. first yeah, solicited no, they, application... They have a triage. They have a clear triage problem. Right. And so as opposed to a random lottery, or as opposed to just letting the first X number who signed up take it, New York announced a rule where priority will be given to graduates of New York law schools. Um, and if and only if there are seats left, once all graduates of New York law schools have been allowed to sit in the New York bar. Um, Steve, let's play a game. Let's ask uh, who's the first person in the chat that can post the, the constitutional problem. Which provision of the Constitution does that violate? Go. <laughs> we'll just sort of stare at the chat line while we uh, while we go on with it. Um, Maybe we don't want to wait. You want to uh, let the cat out of the bag? Well, um, ooh, uh, Christina Lewis wins. Uh, uh, the correct answer is the dormant commerce clause. Um, and here's the little tricky thing why, right? So um, the Article 4's privileges and immunities clause um, bars states from discriminating based on residency. So you can't treat out-of-state citizens differently without a sufficiently good reason. This isn't that, right? Uh, just because you graduate from a New York bar, uh, New York uh, uh, law school, right. does not mean you're a New York resident. So Californians at Columbia can take it, but New Yorkers from UT cannot. Um, indeed. Um, rather, um, this is um, discriminating, uh, favoring people who chose to engage in commerce to it going to law school in New York, um, and disfavoring people who engaged in commerce in any other state. Um, it is therefore, to my mind, Bobby, a textbook violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause. Yeah, I think this is the, the only interesting question here is, what will, what, who will be the lead litigant on this? Um, there, are, there are lots and lots of deans, surely, all around the country trying to figure out uh, you know, wh who wants to actually put their name on a lawsuit here and sue the, the bar examiners. Um, it, it's really unfortunate, and, and time is of the essence to resolve this. I think their window for registering, they've announced this window where, where it does matter how quickly you sign up, and I think it's like next week. 
like maybe even starting Tuesday. So. I will just say as a New Yorker and as a, a proud member of the New York bar, I find this, and as a professor at the University of Texas School of Law who has students who had signed up to take the New York bar, um, color me miffed. Yeah, hey, I'm with you. I'm a re- you'll have you know I'm a retired member oh. of the, the New York bar. I took it at the Javits Center. And you know what happened to me, Steve, uh, the moments before we began taking the exam, ever told you this? No. The proctor had finished reading the instructions. It's dead silent. There's like a thousand people in there. And then someone gets up in front of me, starts running to the bathroom, stops next to me and gets very sick and then has to be carried out of the room. Um, I couldn't decide if that was a sign that I was in great shape or doomed. Um, in any event, let's move on because we want to have time for Q&A and we're okay. going to run short on time soon. So let's do a quick, uh, so we do a Trumplandia lightning round? Yeah, let's do lightning, <laughs> lightning strikes in Trumplandia. Is lightning going to strike for Mike Flynn? Is it going to strike him or strike for him? I don't know because he blocks me on Twitter apparently. I, I, I discovered this totally by accident the other day. I've, you know, I, sometimes you, just, you, you see a tweet and you're confused. And I'm like, why can't I see that? Oh, this person blocks me. That's oh. strange. So apparently at Jen Flynn blocks me. I'm looking for him. <laughs> Anyways, so what's going on with Flynn? He's I'd be surprised be if he blocks you. He's supposed to be sentenced, but there's this very loud, well, uh, sort of groundswell of people saying he's been victimized. What, what is it that has happened, Steve, that is causing people to, to kind of put him in the Carter Page corner of someone associated with the campaign and then the administration who the claim is was done badly by FBI? So DOJ owed Flynn production. Um, as part of, I believe, the sentencing uh, procedures before Judge Sullivan in the D.C. Federal District Court. Um, and so DOJ has been gradually producing to Flynn um, various internal documents related to the investigation into him, um, the conversations with him, et cetera. Um, and Flynn's lawyers have turned around and posted these. Well, first, they've, they've submitted them, although Judge Sullivan then yelled at them to stop submitting them one at a time. Um, as opposed to waiting for them to finish, you know, being disclosed and then submit them. Um, and this has led, you know, the entire right-wing media sphere um, to go all in on how um, he was framed, he was set up. The worst things that ever happened in the history of criminal justice happened to General Flynn. Um, you know, Sullivan should grant his motion to dismiss for outrageous governmental conduct. Um, you know, he should be pardoned. He should be canonized. I mean, you name it, right? It's, it's there. Um, to which I have to say, um, do you know how the FBI works, right? Like, I mean, if, if we want to, if, if we don't think lying to the FBI should be a crime, fine. There's a way to change that. Um, <laughs> right. But the, you know, Flynn lied to the FBI. Was he, um, was he somewhat induced to lie to the FBI? Possibly. Does this happen every day? Yes. So like for about the 9,000th time, um, people are discovering that criminal procedure rules at the federal level and in many states are actually remarkably pro-government. Did you know that? Uh, I don't know that I would characterize it that way, but I do agree with the important Bobby. point is that the treatment and whatever's happening with Flynn isn't particularly, I'm sure there are any number of, of more run-of-the-mill type crime cases where people say, yeah, this is what happens in my case. Uh, I don't think there's any chance that Judge Sullivan is going to issue a sentence that's any different than he would have otherwise. I don't you know, but, but he's also not going to grant the motion to dismiss, I think, is the law. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. I, I kind of skipped over because that's so obvious. There's no way he's going to grant that motion to dismiss. But the effect of it all is it creates a narrative environment where it'll be easier for the president to issue a pardon, which is what I think he will do. 
Um, but just, I mean, like, uh, not for the first time and not for the last time, right? Like, you know, we had the same conversation with FISA and Carter Page. We had the same conversation with Roger Stone. Like, you know, there are, you know, if you think, if, if folks who are supporters of General Flynn think that he got a raw deal and think that what happened to him is unfair, then let's talk about structural reforms because this kind of stuff happens to plenty of criminal defendants all the time, you know, who don't have the ear of the president, who weren't the national security advisor of the United States. Um, I, do, I do think that it's not, there, there's both a camp of people who, who are interested in this issue suddenly uh, because of the, the go team, the team allegiance. Um, but then I do think there's also a, a big slice of, of the right that's very interested uh, over the past many years now People like Clark Neely, uh, you know, libertarians who are interested in criminal justice reform. The Koch brothers are invested in this area. So the the political landscape is is complex on this area. But it'll be interesting if what if the the legacy of Mike Flynn becomes a spring criminal justice reform? Wouldn't that be something? Once again, I am not holding my breath. Yeah, um, I won't get. I won't bet a beer on that one. No, that's, that's not the only thing happening in litigation land. Yeah, so this, so this is interesting. So on Monday, uh, there were two really interesting things that happened that I think are actually deeply related to each other in Trump litigation land this week. Um, so on Monday, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, since, you know, we're in, this is the Austin bar after all, um, the other Supreme Court um, issued a supplemental briefing order in two of the three cases about the president's financial records that are now set to be argued by telephone on May 12th. Um, and the supplemental briefing order um, asked the parties and the Solicitor General, who's not technically a party, but he's on the president's side in these cases, um, to address whether these cases are justiciable um, or instead whether the, they are barred by the political question doctrine or some other justiciability obstacle. Um, and we should say um, no one has argued at any point in these cases that they're not justiciable. These are the cases where it's the president who's the plaintiff suing Deutsche Bank and Mazars to try to prevent them from complying with congressional subpoenas, where the whole claim is that these subpoenas are invalid on their face. Um, and so this briefing order asking if the cases are non-justiciable seems at first blush, Bobby, like a shot out of left field. Here's the but. The but is, on Tuesday, um, the full DC Circuit sitting on Bonk uh, reheard the Don McGahn case, um, where the House is the plaintiff suing to enforce a subpoena against Don McGahn and were the original three judge panel in a decision back in February that we spent a long time, Bobby, I think both of us heavily criticizing mm -hmm. um, on the podcast. Um, held was non-justiciable, right? Held was not, it was not the job of the courts to resolve inner branch disputes over subpoenas. Right, we agreed on that one that that was not right. Well, I'm not sure John Roberts agrees with us because you know the way that I read the briefing order is the Supreme Court or at least the Chief Justice has seen a potential compromise decision, right? Where he hold, where the court holds that these disputes are categorically non-justiciable. Um, why would that be a compromise? Well, in the cases the court is actually set to hear, the two Trump cases, that would mean Trump loses, right? Because if they're non-justiciable, then it means Trump can't repair to the courts to try to block them, to try to have them block Mazars and Deutsche Bank from voluntarily complying with subpoenas. So Trump would lose those battles. Can you but, distinguish it? Can, can you say, well, it's not distinguishable when it's a battle between the branches because they have an ability to leverage each other in a way that's not true in the private actor setting. So, so I mean, Trump could win-win. Maybe, right? But again, I mean, the, 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 
the Judge Griffith opinion in the McGann case, the panel opinion, the since vacated panel opinion, talks about how any dispute, right, arising out of a subpoena from Congress to a current or recently former senior executive branch officer, right, should be non-justiciable. And all I'm saying is, if that is the, the compromise holding that the chief is sort of dangling out there, um, I actually think that would be not remotely a compromise. It would be a huge disaster. Um, because what it would mean is that maybe, Bobby, maybe the president would lose this battle, maybe not, um, but Congress would lose the war because yeah. what the, you know, that would leave Congress going forward to only its far more coercive powers to try to uh, uh, compel compliance with subpoenas. Basically, if the, the sergeant at arms, if the deputy secretary of the interior refuses to show up for a hearing, Congress is going to defund the entire you know, Department of the Interior. Congress is going to send the sergeant at arms to the interior department to arrest the secretary, the deputy secretary and throw him in, a, in jail. I mean, I just, that sounds like a plot line from episode, the 2021 series of the life we're currently living. So I mean, maybe so, but, but this is, I mean, I just, I, I've, you know, your friend and mine, Josh Chaffetz, um, you know, is a firm believer that it would be much better for Congress to reclaim some of these authorities and for Congress to actually use its self-help powers to coerce compliance with its oversight function. And I just feel like that is like, you know, that is bringing gasoline, right, to a, to a sort of, a, a, I, I don't know, bring gasoline to a smoking party. I don't even know what the metaphor is, but it's just, you know, it's why, why ratchet things up when you can have sort of subpoena by subpoena litigation? Um, so I just, I say all this just to say that like, you know, when the Supreme Court hears argument on May 12th, if this is a common theme, Bobby, it reminds me of, of the 1974 ruling in the Nixon case right, where the Supreme Court famously compromises, where the court says um, there is a constitutionally grounded executive privilege. It's an Article II. Congress can't mess with it. It's a huge deal. It just doesn't apply to Nixon because he's a crook. And so Nixon lost the case, right, but the presidency won the war. And I feel like, you know, if that's where we're headed, that's going to just be really bad news from my perspective for Congress's ability to oversee any president, right, of any party. I tend to agree with that. I think that, um, Clearly, there's a great deal at stake. I'm not yet convinced they'll try to sort of shoot this temporary compromise pathway as opposed to doing something that's got a longer lens view, because I think the chief does look at things from a long lens view and surely understands everything you've just described. But we'll see, because I, I think that the court also, you can never, you rarely can go wrong betting on the court to do things that are ultimately kind of conservative from the point of view of preserving the court's institutional legitimacy by trying to stay off of um, issues that could really blow up in their face. They obviously do sometimes do it. They do grasp the nettle sometimes. I mean, this is, I mean, I mean, it was the chief justice who in 2012, in a case about Congress trying to interfere in executive branch foreign policy over Israel, when, you know, when the, when the DC circuit held that it was a non-justiciable political question, said, this is a, this is a, an inner branch dispute over the meaning of a statute. Like, this is what we do. And it's just like, yeah. you know, if the courts aren't going to be the ones to resolve interbranch disputes over Congress's oversight function, seems like it's, you know, not really giving a lot of credence to Congress's oversight function. Anyway, yeah. but so this could all be, again, this too could be a nothing burger. It's just a supplemental briefing order, but it, no, it's an alarming one to me. I, I, you persuaded me on that. Huh. That's, it's, uh, that's rare for, for, for you guys. Um, can I do one more bit of news before we throw this open to Q&A? Yeah, do you, I think you had some breaking news. Uh, oh, it's, it's breaking. It's, it's you know, not, some, it's something, breaking something is breaking. Um, so um, we may be the, the only podcast that regularly covers Guantanamo. Um, I'm not sure if that's a feature or a bug. You guys can decide. Um, but while we were recording, uh, Carol Rosenberg, who is just a 
treasure and a resource when it comes to keeping tabs on what's going on at Guantanamo, reports that the chief judge of the entire Guantanamo military commissions, Colonel Douglas Watkins, has assigned himself to handle the 9-11 case, which, as you know, Bobby, is now wanting for a judge. So wait, so which judge, is this judge four or judge is, five? Wait, not only, Bobby, is this judge four in the last four years, but um, here's the rest of Carol's tweet. Um, judge, uh, Colonel Watkins cast his role as a stopgap measure during coronavirus travel restrictions. So he's saying, here I am, the fourth judge to preside over the most important criminal case uh, in the United States in four years, and I'm only going to be here for a few weeks. Well, uh, on... On the other hand, did anyone really think anything was going to happen in that case, even if it's a few months? I mean, you know, as for, for folks who haven't listened to this podcast regularly, Bobby and I have a running joke about how they keep you know, pushing back the projected trial date and we keep betting the over. They would um, uh, they'd be well advised to stop trying to offer predictions about when the trial date is going to be in that yeah, case. How, how is that January 11th, 2021 trial date looking? Now, in fairness, in fairness, COVID-19 has, has added an independent variable, but it was plenty gummed up before that. They were never going to make the 2021 trial no, date even before coronavirus. Yeah. All right. I so agree. we've been talking to each other for way too long. You guys have been very patient. We're standing between you and happy hour. Um, and so before the, the libations commence, we thought we would throw it open to some questions. Um, whether you want to take advantage of the blue hand raise function um, in the participant box or whether you want to use the, the group chat. Um, no question to what, Bobby? No question to questiony. Anything's fine. Anything, anything goes. I bet if we could turn on the video on everybody, we'd see that plenty of people are already at happy hour, Steve. Hey, listen, you know, um, we, we haven't given them the code for CLE credit yet, right? That's true. <laughs> All right, no what have y'all got for us? And it's okay if you don't have anything, but fire away if you do. If your video's on, you can also just wave at the camera if you want our attention and you can't find the blue hand. Are you sure we'll be able to see them? Um, well, only on the, the page one out of five that oh. I'm looking at. I see Michael. All right, so here's Michael a question. Bob. Here's a question from Rob Johnson. Has okay, COVID Michael, stopped the FOIA process like it has the State Public Information Act? Um, so um, uh, I can't speak, Rob, for every department, but I have seen a couple of headlines um, that a couple of departments, I think the State Department and I think DOJ, have both um, reduced and scaled back their FOIA processing um, in response to coronavirus. I think one of them, maybe even DOJ, said that it wouldn't be accepting electronic FOIA submissions, um, at least for a certain period of time, um, to sort of mitigate the, the personnel impact that that would entail. Of course, I then say, well, wait a second. So instead of an electronic submission, you're going to make someone go out to a mailbox and mail a letter that someone else is in turn going to have to open. But they don't put me in charge of anything. So the short answer, Rob, is um, yes for some agencies. I don't know enough to speak for all agencies. And next we'll go to Michael Dodd. Michael, you had your hand up. I'll unmute you here. There you go. Oh, your microphone needs, there, there you go. First, thanks to you and Steve for doing this. This is excellent. Going to the Guantanamo case that you just mentioned, there was a quote earlier in the CLE today that justice delayed is justice denied. How many years has that case been going? And how many more might it be going? And would this be a case that could go to the Supreme Court saying that justice has been denied and so that the uh, defendant should go free? I bet we'll have a disagreement on this one, Steve. What, you want to go first? Well, not on the factual parts of the question. No, I mean, just maybe the last part. Okay. Um, so, um, it, Michael, it's, the case has been pending 
in one form or another for at the early, at the shortest possible conception, about 12 and a half years. Um, right. Some of the five defendants, and, and just to be clear, this is one of the three ongoing military commission trials at Guantanamo. There are five defendants. These are the, the so-called 9-11 masterminds, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, and some of them, Bobby, have been in U.S. detention in one way, shape or form since 2002. Right. But the actual military commission proceedings, I think, didn't get off the ground till 08 and then had a couple of hiccups along the way um, and haven't really been going. I don't, they've never gone smoothly, but haven't really been sort of moving the way that I, even though I think the government wants them to um, since, until I think what, Bobby, 2014 or so, 14 or 15. Um, it's, it's hard to so, remember. So, Michael, the short answer is a minimum of 12 years. Um, the. The speedy trial question you raise, I think, is a very significant one, but there are two problems. Um, the first is that the Speedy Trial Act does not apply to the Guantanamo military commissions. Um, and the second is that the speedy trial clause may not protect the defendants at all, um, right? That the government's position has been that the Sixth Amendment doesn't apply to them at all. Um, the, and there's, a, there's one really interesting circuit court decision, the Gailani case from the Second Circuit in, Bobby, 2014, 2013? Um, so Gailani is the one guy who was moved from Guantanamo into the U.S. Um, to be tried in a civilian court during the Obama administration. Um, and he had been held in a combination of CIA and then military detention for five and a half years before the, he was tried in civilian court. And he brought a speedy trial clause challenge to the prosecution. And the Second Circuit uh, held in a panel decision um, that, there, that national security is an adequate justification for delay. So, you know, Michael, if, it's, if it purely comes down to the speedy trial issue, um, I'm not holding my breath that that's going to be a particularly successful claim for the defendants. Um, to the procedural question, if they're ever convicted, they have a statutory right um, to a direct appeal first to the Court of Military Commission Review, an Article I court that sits right above the military commissions, then to the D.C. Circuit, and then like any other case from the D.C. Circuit, um, a cert petition to the Supreme Court. Um, I think if they're convicted and if the death penalty is attached to the conviction, there's going to be a whole lot of serious issues that the DC circuit would have to work out on that inevitable post-conviction appeal seven, eight, nine years from now. Um, I'd be very surprised though, if the Supreme court were to take the case once the DC circuit has done its thing. So I'll, I'll add to that, that uh, that all's right. I mean, descriptively speaking, that's more or less the shape of it. I don't think there's any chance the Supreme Court at the end of the road or the D.C. Circuit or the Court of Military Commission Review that any of them will accept a, a speedy trial argument of any kind just because the, the, the pace of events that have been so glacial, it's as, as much or more about the uh, first, the, the creation of the Military Commissions Act of 2009, which changes up the whole system. Then you have changing judges. You have the sheer glacial nature of the process where it's not that the prosecutors are sitting on their hands failing to take action. Um, so I, I just don't see that particularly happening. I do want to underscore that when we're talking about the Gitmo detainees, um, there are really two separate tracks and, and all of them are on one track and then some of them are on the other track. That, that other track is the military commission prosecution process, which is so glacial and just doesn't seem to ever go anywhere, especially compared to how it works in a civilian Article Three court, where the government, by the way, almost always wins its terrorism cases. That first track that they're all on 
is military detention for the duration of the armed conflict, however long the courts are willing to accept that the armed conflict continues with Al-Qaeda and associated forces. And there, the judicial review element, of course, is habeas corpus. Everybody who wants to litigate a habeas claim to challenge the merits of the legal foundation of their detention at Gitmo, everyone who's wanted to do that has had the opportunity to do that. And there's Remember, been, there, there's sort of a half of an exception, Bobby. Right. Come, lay out the exception in a second, but, but generally speaking, it's definitely true. Um, and there are some who don't want to challenge that, who aren't interested in coming to court claiming they weren't members of Al-Qaeda, et cetera. Um, the pattern of results there have been mixed over time. The government's won more than it's lost in the end, or that they lost a bunch at first. That, that set of litigation unfolded years and years ago. Um, eventually, we'll see another round of that litigation because as the underlying facts change regarding whether and how we're in an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda, it's always possible to relitigate that. Now, Steve, you're going to add a wrinkle there. Just that, I mean, I think in the case of Abu Zubaydah, right, um, uh, the, there's been a really confusing and unclear procedural mess that has prevented his habeas petition from really going forward. Um, and I think we're not privy to all. So, so we can't say categorically everyone who's wanted habeas has got one, but we can say everybody except him. I think right. that's right. I think there's there are claims, at least out of the, de- the defense camp for him or his his lawyers, that in fact they have wanted to move forward faster and it's being blocked in some way. Uh, uh, I think, but yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Just uh, there's a question here uh, from Rob. Uh, Rob Johnson asks, have there been any significant discussions about incorporating strict firewalls to keep NSA and or FBI away from the data? if we adopt comprehensive contact tracing to follow people's movements during the COVID crisis? Why, yes, there has. Um, I've got, a, I've got a piece on this very topic at Lawfare. If you don't know Lawfare and Just Security, those are the two blogs that are the best things to follow for national security legal news. Um, my piece talks a lot about the various complications where we try to get as much uptake of a COVID contact tracing app as possible while being smart about privacy and especially being smart about how if you're not smart about privacy, you won't get voluntary uptake of the app, which is what we actually need if we ever get to that stage. Um, and so what I argue is that, especially if there's ever any kind of mandatory legislatively required uh, use of the app for people moving about with their phones, um, you would probably need to build into it just a flat statutory prohibition on the sharing of that information with anyone other than a public health authority, full stop. Now, this sort of scenario arises all the time, for example, with the sort of surveillance authorities we talked about earlier. And it is commonplace to have exceptions where the information that's brought into the government's hands for one purpose can be handed over to another purpose for extremely important things. And then people fight over, how do you define the line? Is it just murder investigations? Is it also all violent crime, et cetera? For something as important and time sensitive as COVID-19 contact tracing, if we're, if we're really going to open up like we're doing and we don't want to have a triage nightmare at the hospitals, we need to be testing everywhere. We need to be contact tracing everywhere. And an app can really help with that, but only if people are willing to download it and keep it on their phones. And I think you could buy a lot of cooperation from those who are inclined to be skeptical about government intrusions on privacy by having a hard and fast rule that just doesn't have exceptions. It's a one trick pony done for public health reasons. Well, on that uplifting and or terrifying note, um, we should probably note that uh, we are past 445, Bobby, and we really are standing in the way of, of happy hour. Although, wasn't this a happy hour? 
I mean, you know, I, I had I took happiness from it. You brought me happiness. Um, so um, we really do uh, want to say again, thanks to Amanda and everyone from the Austin Bar. Thanks to all of you. Um, if you found this remotely interesting, we do this every week. Um, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, when we started in January 2017, I think Bobby would agree the thing we were worried about the most was running out of content um, in a couple of months. Um, and here we are in you know April, May of 2020. And, and Bobby, we still have quite a list. Um, so please do check out the podcast. It's the National Security Law Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. Um, Bobby is a much more um, uh, even keeled follow. He's at Bobby Chesney. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I have a lot of fun getting dragged by my wife. So I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. Um, she's at Karen Vladek ESQ. She's pretty fun too. Um, and yep. we are at NSL Podcast. And we hope you guys, if you enjoyed this, will um, come back and check us out another time. Um, and thanks for having us. So Bobby, if I've done my job right, uh, this is a, a, this sounded like a perfectly natural segue from our uh, live session with the Austin Bar Association um, to our not ready for prime time end of podcast frivolity discussion. So um, if you're listening at home and that was a little bit of a weird transition, I apologize. Um, audio engineer, sound engineer is about my, you know, I don't know. I, it's not high on my list of skills. I'll just put it that way. Hi, you do a good job. Um, yeah, so that was really fun. I'm so glad we did that, but I'm really glad that we're reassembling now so we can talk about frivolity. Seriously. Tune, tune out if you don't want to hear about Westworld episode seven. Da, da, da. And indeed, by the time some folks listen to this, they may have seen the, the season finale of Westworld. Oh, that's true, actually. All right. So um, I liked it. I had fun with that episode. I've changed my expectations for what I'm going to get out of this. And now I'm viewing it more as a, as a little bit more of a, a whimsical, highly budgeted sci-fi uh, sort of adventure show instead of a uh, more of a deeper meditation. I'm, I'm not yet impressed by anything they've tried to say of a deeper nature about uh, the nature of life and whatnot. Um, but what do you think about this episode? You know, I, I don't know. I, I was, I was in equal parts, Bobby, captivated by it and really sort of um, confused. Isn't the right word, but just sort of like not quite sure what I was supposed to take away from it. Like you know, it's not like it's not like um, Game of Thrones. Right where it's pretty where where you can't miss the message. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> um, right, and, and it's just like I, I just I wonder if you know it, it seems like they're really um, shifting the terms of the cataclysmic confrontation. Like all of a sudden, the all powerful Dolores is not all powerful. I know, I've, yeah, I know. There, it, it does feel almost. It's a little bit like the three most recent Star Wars movies, where they're like, "All right, yeah. this episode sets up the plot going one direction," right. but then the next episode, it seems like, "No, they're actually Dolores is almost kind of heroic now." And right. Like, oh, I, I, that's like it's, it's like and 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 Char Loris, like, what's her role going to be in all of this? And I'm still not quite. So you know, I, I want to leave open the possibility that the season finale is actually going to tie these threads together in a way that I find deeply satisfying. But for the moment, I, I thought I, I felt a lot of this week's episode was jarring and discordant um, in sort of you know departing from what I had thought the evolution of the season's major plot themes was supposed to be. Yeah, felt felt almost like uh, somebody did, did rewrite. Right, the earlier season was filmed uh, in with one ultimate arc in mind, right. and somebody said like that didn't that didn't test well. So let's well, redo. Or, or now that they've renewed for season four, maybe like they had a different view in mind if this was going to be the end of the series versus oh, now that it's not. Maybe there was some. Well, who knows? They probably it was yeah. all in the can. Probably. But by the way, so speaking of Star Wars, do you know what's happening on Monday? 
uh, you mean on May the 4th be with us? Yes, on May the 4th. Oh, no, wait, do I, does Disney now own all my IP because I said that? <laughs> Come on, Disney. So, I mean, besides the, the first ever uh, telephone live argument in the Supreme Court on Monday, um, which is a trademark case, actually, um, the, um, um, Disney is releasing uh, episode nine on Disney Plus on Monday. Yeah, that's gonna be pretty cool. So we're trying in our house, we're trying to figure out what sort of uh, preparatory watching uh, to lead into that with. I think, you know, there's been a mix of our kids having seen different, different ones more recently than others. I think we're just going to go with a seven, eight, nine sequence. Mm. You know why six is afraid of seven, don't you? The seven, eight, nine. Yeah, okay, just checking. Make sure you do in fact have little kids because that's Listen, an important one. Dad jokes or dad jokes, man. <laughs> um, yeah, are you gonna are you gonna line up any special preview to be ready for Rise of the Skywalkers? The- I am the only person in this house at the moment who likes Star Wars. I mean, I think Maddie will in another year or two, but I think you know she likes the idea of Star Wars. Right, um, right. But sitting through the whole thing, I get it. Right. She thinks she thinks Baby Yoda is cute, even though she's never actually seen Baby Yoda. I was like, how do you know Baby Yoda is cute? She said because they say so at school. She should say it is known. It is known. It is known. Although that, that would be some real high-level Game of Thrones knowledge right there. That would be. Um, um, so, so, right, so back to Westworld. Yes. So, so I guess all this is to say, like, I mean, it's odd. The other piece of this that I really find confusing is the earlier part of the season made it seem like Dolores' decision to bring Caleb along with her was sort of spur of the moment. And, yes. And now, yes. and now it's being portrayed as, like, Dolores carefully singled him out as the leader, as the John Connor, right? Yeah, exactly. Of the, yeah. of the human resistance against the machines, and it's just, or, and the, against the the Serac machines, not the Dolores machines. And it's just like, like that's not how it happened. Like I, you know, yeah, it was I, completely, you know, unless they're going to do a big reveal and be like, aha, this is all done on purpose. But you know, but but I mean, it was a fluke that they were in the same place at the, in the first place, right? I mean, right. and so so I just I you know that's why I mean you you hit the nail, you hit the, the 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 nail on the head. I mean, episode seven has that sort of rewrite feel to it. Um, yeah, like, turns out actually, he I think you're I felt the John Connor vibe. Obviously, I think it's on purpose too a little bit. I mean, everything about like yeah his look is is reminiscent of original Terminator. Seriously. Respect. Um, all right. Well, well, I, go through, let's go through the actual story because I agree with you at the meta level. It's like, oh, this is kind of, I expect more. Um, but at the uh, action and sort of tactical level, it's, it's a load of fun. Um, I'm not sure I found it very satisfying the, the, the demise, you know, so the, the Saito's demise right. at the beginning with, uh, so you find out who Maeve's allies are. Right. No, no real surprise, no shock there. By the way, have you noticed, speaking of the Terminator, how increasingly as these season three episodes go on, the host bodies seem more and more uh, Terminator-like in their ability to shrug off significant wounds that were debilitating up until this point in this series. Well, I mean, so there is an explanation for that, right? Is, I mean, so, so we learned from Maeve that the reason why the hosts reacted to violence the way they did in season one is because they're you know, their settings were set to react that way, right? That's true, right. So they've been, they can turn off the pain or whatever. But, you know, I think about when Dolores, Dolores kneecaps Maeve and it doesn't even affect her ability to move. Right. And there's, you know, there's a physics element to this that I think is there's not a, being there's a physics piece very much. Right, right. Um, anyway, so, so I have to say, like, I, I, I am not quite as high on it as I was earlier in the season. Um, 
but it's still the best damn show on television. Do you think that the Maeve character has been made less appealing as she's become more of warrior Maeve? She's been kind of turned into a ninja and doesn't and, and has lost any sort of I feel like there used to be more nuance with that character trying to well, think and about like, and what, like was, what was driving her, right? Like what, you know, what, what's her aspiration? Like is her aspiration to be in the encrypted, you know, fantasy world with her daughter, right? I mean, like what's, you know, what, what, what drives her? Yeah, that, I didn't think that was so great. Um, what did you think about what I thought that the most interesting part of the story, of course, is the, the backgrounder on Cal. You yeah. knew from some glimpses we've been getting that he'd been conditioned somehow. Yeah. And they, they kind of taught us to understand how that works by having had uh, the man in black go through the same deal. Yeah. Uh, I actually thought it was really interesting, first of all, to have Solomon revealed yeah. and to kind of tie in with, uh, I, and I thought Solomon was voiced well and, and they gave him the right words and tone. It was, right. it was good. Um, and revealing that Cal actually was, that, you know, there are this, these species of human outliers that won't conform, can't be predicted. They're just too unique to be conformed into the system. But then instead of just killing these people, I, it, it so clearly would be better from Rehoboam's perspective or, or Solomon's perspective, whichever it is, just go around having these people killed. The, the whole thing, like, let's recondition some and use them to go get others. They seem to manipulate everyone else just fine. Why can't they just frame the heck out of all the people they need to get rid of Right. and kill them that way right. and, and why keep them on ice well we're, we're back to the same place which is if all this technology really exists why do you use it this way not that way and the answer is plot plot yeah that's true right? the, see confer um lack of facial recognition technology being wired into anything yeah. such as a police force that robo well, bobby bobby control. facial recognition was before the privacy laws that's true they got rid of that didn't they that's right um i thought the, the whole thing with the actual true story of francis you, you had to figure somehow or other this is like the last episode of MASH, right? Like uh, Hawkeye, Hawkeye killed the chicken. Or, no, it, or the mother killed the chicken. No, the mother killed the baby. Um, it was, sorry if I spoiled that for anyone, by the way, who's watching MASH for the first time. Um, I, I thought you knew there had to be something, but I didn't anticipate that they kind of had this whole secret, like uh, hitman identity, and then they turned Francis on him. That was cool. I thought yes. that, was, that was a nice- uh, Well, because, I mean, plot. you had some sense that like, we didn't quite have the, you, you had a sense that like the, the story Cal tells is not really the story. And so, right. Yeah, you knew something was up, and I just figured it was more of a. So piece that of that part was cool, and that and that, and I like how that actually ties into the broader the broader phenomenon. But again, right, the serendipity of Doris finding Dolores finding Caleb again. That makes even less. Like he's the most dangerous of all the outliers. Um, and why is it? Is a, it because like John Connor? Like right. John Connor, he has unique charisma. John Connor, yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, uh, all right. Was there any other nugget in there? I think probably. I, I didn't find the Man in Black developments with Stubbs and Bernard. It's still they still feel like the comic relief duo, and I guess they set it up at the very end where they pretty foolishly, where there's clearly been a gunfight, just kind of turn him loose to go uh, to go to the bathroom without going with him to see what guns he might find laying around, and it looks a lot like he's going to kill at least one of them, presumably Stubbs, but maybe not Bernard. Still not uh, clear to me what Bernard's do. It's still, it's still not clear to me what Bernard's purpose and role is in this season. There better be a cash out from that because if, if it if they actually just clip him off or leave him hanging as a loose thread, then that definitely proves that this story changed along the way. Or they it don't. It, I mean, it won't take much. All like one sentence of exposition from Dolores about why she brought Bernard would be you know, right. Would do, would do the work. 
Because deep within his code is the unique ability to press this button. I, I don't know. Just, just you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for Sunday, but I also hope that, like, you know, and I'm sure there'll be a cliffhanger because they have to justify season four. But I also hope that there's right. at least some um, ball moving. Last, last comment. Um, why doesn't the EMP destroy the precious secret plan that just got downloaded electronically to something that Cal is holding? Is it just like he was one room away outside the range? It was shielded from the EMP, obviously. He was in the lead room? It's a lead-lined handheld device, obviously. It's got a Faraday cage around it or something? Because plot. Yeah, because plot, exactly. Um, So I said that, I mean, it's still the best show on television, but it is also running up against the second best show on television. And I just have to say, you got to watch The Last Dance. It is so good. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm eager to get started. Um, We're finishing off the final, uh, the most recent season of Stranger Things one little bit at a time, so... All right. Well, speaking of, of familial obligations, I hear screaming in the background. So that's, <laughs> that is unfortunately my cue. Um, so uh, hopefully if we pull this off, uh, this is the real end of this week's episode. Um, and we'll be back probably, Bobby, closer to our regular timing next week. Um, I agree. Yep. If the world is still here to give you a Westworld season finale recap um, and to figure out what other nonsense has happened between now and then. So until then, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, Bobby, I prefer my nothing burgers, medium rare. Show title. (laughs) Stay safe, everybody. Adios.